Cancun. Rodney King and JFK, a whitewash, a hoodwink on the USA. Martin Luther King was murdered too. Another cover up to make a fool of you. Whitewash. We know it's our eyes, we should have believed. JFK died while we believed. believed. November 22nd, 1963. In a crossfire of bullets while the cameras rolled. And the people heard the shots from the grassy knoll. Now the Warren Commission gave their lengthy report. A lone nut did it all, they never got to court. But they couldn't cover up what we saw on TV. Now we know it's our eyes. We should have believed. No, they couldn't cover up what we saw on TV. The JFK and Rodney King. You might be black. You might be full white trash. Yeah, yeah. No, they can't cover up what we saw on TV. We know it's our eyes. We should have believed. The he came in, according to plan. With the money set aside, the protested plan. But the protest turned to riots in the maddening crowd. And for what happened next, no one can be proud. The police say that Rodney was to blame. If you believe that, you've been whitewashed again. You can't cover up what we saw on TV. We know it's our eyes, we should have believed. We know it's our eyes, we should have believed. When we saw JFK and Rodney King, you might be black, you might be full white trash. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they can't cover up what we saw on TV. We know it's our eyes, we should have believed. About 700 mil. They don't hold a candle to losing the SNLs. And you talk about the murder and the bodily harm, but they're still busy bragging about Desert Star. And it happened in Grenada and Panama too. Ask the widows and the orphans about the whitewash they used. And you're listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, 
Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. In honor of JFK's death day, going to do some interviews with Scott from the documentary Oswald, The Last 48 Hours, which is actually airing today on the History Channel. November 22nd, 2013, November 22nd, 1963. 50 years of JFKian and Oswaldian adventures. And so, yeah, check it out tonight on History Channel in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada at 10 p.m. That's Oswald, the last 48 Hours and going to do an interview with Scott from Oswald, the last 48 hours today on the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show. And you just heard right there in honor of JFK from the tape, a musical review of the JFK assassination cover up, The Bongos with White Wash. Coming up before we get into an interview with Scott Frowley from Lee Harvey Oswald, The Last 48 Hours, a documentary on the History Channel. Going to go back to something that is classic, that has been played every time of the Nardward Human Serviette radio show variety explores stuff in depth into JFK. I'm talking about Steinsky and the track you've heard before, The Motorcade Sped On. So going to hear The Motorcade Sped On. And then an interview with Scott from the documentary, Lee Harvey Oswald, The Last 48 Hours. All again in honor of JFK 50, 1963, 2013. Here's Steinsky with The Motorcade Sped On. On. The Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show. And now, here's Johnny. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Here is a bulletin. Here is a bulletin. What is it? Stand by, please. Stand by, please. In Dallas, Texas... Oh, 
Scott Frawley. Scott, welcome to the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show. Thank you for having me. On the occasion of John F. Kennedy's death day, would you call this John F. Kennedy's death day that we're discussing? That's right. How are you involved in the death day of John F. Kennedy, Scott? If specifically Lee Harvey Oswald, 48 Hours to Live, by author Stephen M. Gillen. That's right, yeah. I'm speaking on behalf of Steve Gillen, who's the resident historian at the History Channel. He actually has written a book that is being released alongside the film. So I'm coming from actually the filmmaking end where the History Channel is having a uh, release by the same name. And you can check out the movie, the documentary, 48 Hours to Live, tonight. Tonight, right? That's right, yeah. 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time which translates probably as 7 p.m. <laughs> Pacific time. Although with the JFK assassination, things are so confusing, you never know what will happen. There probably were some interesting bugaboos with the JFK assassination investigation you've had, right? Yeah, I, I did most of the archival research. So for the film, I helped pull out you know textual records and photos and some film used in the documentary. And um, our approach is really more about those two days where it starts with the arrest of Oswald and then his murder by Ruby. So I, I'm really coming from an angle that's more about that interrogation and less from a angle of, you know, the... Uh, motives, I guess. So that's where maybe some of the conspiracy comes into play about the larger picture. At that level of the interrogation, I think one of the only interesting things that was really counted 
counter to our research was a neat thing at the National Archives where there was a roster of all the people working at the Texas School Book Depository Building. Now, there were a few weeks where Oswald had been working. You can see his name right there, Lee Oswald, on the roster. And then on the occasion of the 22nd, there was like a a week's roster, and it was right there as Leslie Oswald, which I thought was interesting. But that was pretty much the only tidbit I found counter to our, you know, lone gunman theory. Do you believe that Lee Harvey Oswald fired a shot at all? I do believe he fired a shot. In fact, as we say in the film and Steve says in the book, that we believe that Oswald was the lone gunman. How come you believe he's the lone gunman? Uh, Based on the majority of reports about the number of shots fired and where they came from, from they came from that sixth floor window of the texas school book depository building oswald was an employee there he had uh, a means of getting up to that sixth floor and in fact he fled the scene so scott how did you a punk rocker get involved in a history channel movie well it was uh like a lot of things being at the right place at the right time and i guess that uh some of that alternative history came um, came into the forefront where I met the producer of the film. Now, he's actually a friend of David McReynolds, who is one of the presidents or foreign presidents of the War Resisters League in New York City. And Anthony and I, the, uh, the producer and writer, Anthony Giacchino and I, worked on an art project called Letters to Another Century. That was for the centennial anniversary of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, So that was a big moment in kind of labor history and uh, kind of a moment of the big dogs getting off scot-free when a lot of people in the poor working class, you know, died or faced these harsh conditions in the textile industry. So we met and he began uh, working on more and more of these History Channel documentaries and we've stayed friends ever since. Regarding Lee Harvey Oswald, how come so many people of interest have three names, like Lee Harvey Oswald, Mark David Chapman, John Wilkes Booth, John Wayne Gacy, James Earl Ray? How come there's all these three names? I like that. I I can't really give you an answer to that, but similarly, I was thinking about that it is hard to just call Lee Lee, you know, it's almost like you psychologically want to distance yourself from him and call him just Oswald. And I wonder if there's something to that. You know, you can't be on that first name basis with a killer. Now, we're speaking here to Scott, who helped put together the Lee Harvey Oswald 48 Hours to Live documentary. What about there being two different people? Like, for instance, Lee Oswald and Harvey Oswald. Have you heard of that? Like, two different guys. Like, Lee set up Harvey as the patsy (laughs) for the assassination. I've heard a little bit about that. I don't know too much about the conspiracy theories. Um, I think that just to speak on that word patsy is that, uh, as a lot of historians have said, that moment in time was sort of, you know, misconstrued into that he was a patsy for a bigger conspiracy. But if you look at what the full sentence was, he was saying, you know, they're just accusing me because I was from the Soviet Union. I'm just a patsy, as in they're using that uh, former history of his where he lived, his Russian wife, you know, as a means to keep him locked up. 
in your research about Lee Harvey Oswald, did you find out what type of food Lee Harvey Oswald liked? <laughs> uh, no, I didn't find out about that. I'd love to know more, though. Because apparently, in the sniper's nest, he was eating some chicken. Oh, you know. Oh, what? You're right. Yes, I've heard that it was said that he was eating chicken for lunch. He was. Um, it also said that, hey, I wasn't doing anything. I just got myself a can of Coca-Cola at the soda machine in the lunchroom. And I think he also said that he was just eating his uh, cheese sandwich. I think that's what he said he took in his package to work, which was either those curtain rods or his sandwich or maybe that rifle. Now, what I was curious about was how come nobody has done an autopsy of Lee Harvey Oswald looking for chicken or looking for cheese or traces of Coca-Cola because that would confirm that he really was in the sniper's nest. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I don't know much about that, though, but I have seen those autopsy photos and uh, they're, they're pretty grisly and I think you're onto something there. Was Lee Harvey Oswald the person that was supposed to kill Tippett, or was Tippett supposed to kill Lee Harvey Oswald to silence him? Have you heard about that? J.D. Tippett, the patrolman that spotted Oswald, was he supposed to kill Oswald? Some people might believe that. I think from our angle, and I personally believe it was a complete chance meeting. I think it was uh, something where Oswald was caught off guard by Tippett stopping him while he was driving by um, 10th and Patton. And it was just a surprise moment where Oswald was trying to flee the scene. He didn't know what to do, and he fired at him and killed him. And I think with the number of witnesses around, it was just something that he did off the cuff, you know? Interesting. Scott, the line seems to be breaking up with Scott as we're speaking about Oswald. Very interesting. And all this is happening on the 50th anniversary of JFK's death, November 22nd. 1963, November 22nd, 2013. Interesting that this is occurring with the connection with Scott as we're attempting to get to the bottom of this all. We'll try to reconnect with him in a moment, but while we do that, why don't we hear a remembrance of JFK provided by an Alberta, Canada, radio Station today on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. As if in sympathy with a bereaved southern Alberta, northwestern skies at dawn today were a solemn crimson in hue, but seemingly to dispel the weight of saddened hearts. A brilliant rainbow showed through the bloodied heavens as if to signal, all will be well. The assassination of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy, 35th President of the United States in Dallas, Texas, Friday, November 22, 1963, will go down in history as a day of infamy. In his short term of office, two years and ten months, President Kennedy endeared himself to the hearts of all Canadians and to people everywhere who cherished justice, freedom, 
and dignity of the individual. Mr. Kennedy was the fourth United States president in 100 years to be slain by an assassin. His body lay on the same catafalque that bore the remains of the other three slain heads of state. President Abraham Lincoln was the first to be placed there. President Kennedy was a good man. This was reflected in his way of life. His youthful face was rarely without a smile, but he was capable of a quiet, grim determination that sobered and chilled the minds of those that strive to undermine the forces of freedom. He loved his God, his nation, his people, and life itself. He was unselfish and dedicated. John Fitzgerald Kennedy came to the highest office of the United States of America at a time when world relations were tense and dangerous. With his great understanding of people, he stood strong and unflinching in his determination to see that freedom and justice prevailed everywhere. He stood his ground during the Cuba crisis and risked everything to preserve what he knew was right. Through that hellish time, he was undaunted and emerged as a brilliant star lighting the world of darkness. His decisions at that time struck a solemn chord in the hearts of those that opposed him and made them aware of what he stood for. His word was not taken lightly from that time on. When the tragic news of the president's death reached a shocked and unbelieving world, tears flowed freely. Men, women and children in all walks of life gasped in disbelief and openly cried. Government, business and social activity throughout the world stopped as if stung with a deadly venom. But it was true. The president had died in the execution of his duties. He has left a hallowed memory to each of us and a standard so high it permeates us with a feeling of inadequacy. But all must strive to keep his great policies alive though he is gone, lest we forsake him at his great sacrifice. Now his torch is ours to carry. The president died at the hands of a man who was twisted with hatred and cunning, and we the people of southern Alberta and everywhere can realize that assassination takes many forms. A bullet, a knife, a word. We should all solemnly pledge to rededicate our lives and the image that he left for us and remember his way. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I'm certain the people of Southern Alberta and the rest of the free world extend their deepest sympathy to Mrs. Kennedy and family in this time of great sorrow. As was once said of Abraham Lincoln and can be said again for John Fitzgerald Kennedy, now he belongs to the ages. May God grant wisdom and strength and foresight to the new President Lyndon Johnson, who so suddenly has had a great task placed on his shoulders. Long live the President of the United States of America. The police car that ended up going by Oswald's rooming house ended up honking the horn. Did the horn go doot doot loot do doot do? <laughs> do you know what the horn sounded like? Was there actually a police horn outside of one of Oswald's rooming houses? I really don't think so. I think that, you know, I don't know enough about it, but I think I remember from uh, Slacker, like we were talking about before, I remember a tit tit 
but I don't think doot doot doot. And speaking of Slacker, there's an amazing connection to the JFK assassination big time with Slacker that also plays itself out in a sort of interesting experience right nowadays you were mentioning. Yeah, uh, the Richard Linklater film uh, Slacker from 91 has a fellow in a bookstore who's starting to talk all about the Kennedy assassination. I didn't know enough about the film when I thought maybe these were characters just sort of written for the script. But in fact, that guy, his name is John Slate, is big time into the assassination. And it was really funny because I learned that He's actually the Dallas City Archivist, and I've had a chance to work with him on this film, getting the different Dallas Police Department archives and photos and things. And I got a kick out of that, you know, those many years ago, he was there in Austin talking about his book, Conspiracy A Go-Go. What exactly did you work on, Scott? Like, for instance, where did you get your material? How hard was it to get the material? Did you go to the National Archives, Russian libraries, Cuban libraries? Did you get to touch any Aussie stuff? Yeah, I did. Um, I'll give the research credit, as I said, to the author Steve Gillen. But uh, as far as more of the archival that would appear in the film, I did go to the National Archives and um, a few other libraries that allowed me to scan tons of photos and things like that. And uh, the the big kick for me was holding the money order under the name A. Heidel and also um, Oswald and Marina's passport. So that was really cool. Did you go to any of the exact locations of the actual stuff that went down? Because the documentary, and we're speaking here to Scott from the documentary, Lee Harvey Oswald, 48 Hours to Live, actually films at the exact locations. Did you get to go to those locations yourself? What were the places like? Yeah, that that's key, the fact that the film was uh, produced right at the locations it all took place. So I was also the associate producer and production manager for the film. We went down to Dallas and filmed that Tippett scene at 10th and Patton. We filmed Oswald's arrest at the Texas Theater. And now because... um, Because much of the film covers the interrogation, we also filmed right there in the municipal building. So that's where things get interesting is that the municipal building down in downtown Dallas, it still exists. I think the bottom two floors are in use as uh, courts. But above that, there are three floors that have been derelict since, I don't know, I think the late 70s. And so that's where... All of the archival film you see of the Dallas Police Department, that's where that happened. There's on the third floor, there is uh, the Dallas Police Department, so we film right in uh, Detective Fritz's office. Now, on the fourth floor, that's where they had the the minimum security jail. That's where um, they have kind of processing and things like that. And finally, on the fifth floor, that's where they have his jail cell. That's right where we film Oswald in his own cell right there. Uh, He has his mugshot taken up on that fifth floor. And also, um, well, there you go. So there are those three floors. And I have a funny story for you as well, if you want to chat about filming there. Yes, please go ahead. Well, a funny thing about that is that um, we had a lot of help from locals in Dallas and um, some really nice people we met. And one of the funny stories from filming is that we did get a uh, little dachshund dog um, for Jack Ruby's dog named Sheba. And we had the, the people who had the dog you know, that played Sheba come and join us on set. And I got a kick out of giving them a tour because I brought the dachshund all around, you know, this old abandoned 
you know, these uh, uh, jails and the Dallas Police Department. And it was really fun because I could only imagine the sort of stories this dog was sniffing up inside Lee Harvey Oswald's jail cell. Did any other witnesses come forward when you're filming at all these different locations? What is people's reaction to this? Are they sad? Are they angry? Or is it just, ah, it's another film crew? Did people come forward? Was there actual evidence of Oswald you could see, like, carved into any trees or anything like that? Were there any bullet fragments still lying around in any drain pipes or anything like that? Well, actually, we, we filmed another location we filmed at was at Ruth Payne's home. Now, Ruth Payne was the person that Marina was living with at the time. We filmed at Ruth Payne's house, um, and that's where Oswald kept his rifle that he had taken to work on Friday, November 22nd. And uh, what was interesting about that is that somebody walked by as we were filming, and his dad lived down the street or across the street. And his dad, back then um, in 63, said he saw Oswald leaving for work carrying that package of, you know, will say rifle i'm sure plenty of other people have fun theories as well but when he carried the rifle to work going to different locations and stuff are there some places you can't go to like for instance the second floor of the school book depository where the lunchroom was you can only go like to the higher floors like when you're checking out the building do you know why um i don't know the full reason but i know that that building and we were there as well um has been converted into the sixth floor museum so i don't really know about that second floor but i'd assume that's just something that the museum you know keeps under wraps for their own i don't want to say you know keeps under wraps but i think it just has something to do with whatever they need to get done at the museum but you can go up to the sixth floor you can go up there and see the sniper's nest and things and I'm speaking here to Scott, who helped put together Lee Harvey Oswald, 48 Hours to Live, which is playing tonight on TV. You can check it out on the History Channel. Right, Scott? That's right. Thank you for watching, everybody that tunes in. And it'll be rebroadcast a couple other times as well. The school book depository was filled with not just Lee Harvey Oswald, but a bunch of other guys, too. What were the other guys that were working there? Are they portrayed in your movie? And also, in the movie, who's portraying the different people? Were there interesting actors that had interesting resumes that were participating in this? Um, the, the other people in the Texas School Book Depository aren't really brought up so much in the film. Um, but I, I can give you kind of a funny story of the people we worked with. We worked with a lot of neat people down in Dallas. And Jack Ruby... You know, he's one of the central characters in our film, and we meet this guy, a lovely guy named Trent Tidmore, and we start doing our filming with him, and uh, we learned that it was his first day ever being an actor, and so we were like, oh man, how is this going to go? And the funny thing about this is that his first time ever filming anything was uh, where he just filmed uh, seen just in his underwear hanging out with this dog, <laughs> Sheba. So his first time ever in front of the camera was just watching TV there in his tidy whities and hanging out with a dachshund, you know, and people he'd never met before. You sent me an amazing link, the mcadams.post.mu.edu. What was that exactly? It was like Department of Police Activity Tapes or something like that. 
Yeah, that was cool from the McAdams website. That is um, a collection of the Dallas Police Department tapes. And um, you'll have to follow up Nardwar where you can click a link um, about the story of how the guy found them at the Minneapolis uh, library. But um, on that page, there's an entire transcript of what was going out over the uh, police transmissions. And so you can check out everything that was going on um, during you know, those events on the 22nd and, uh, you can hear Tippett's voice, which is pretty cool too. And from those, uh, tapes, we include, uh, the audio snippets, you know, going around town and trying to identify him right there from the transmissions. It's almost kind of like Twitter, isn't it? When you look at it. Yeah, that's a definitely, definitely an interesting way to put it because it has sort of that real time thing, um, going on. And one thing I thought was interesting about it too, is that, um, the, the police really seemed to have their act together. Um, I was really impressed that, you know, the president is assassinated in their town and there's just something, you know, they just say, it seems the president has been hit, you know, and it just goes from there very calmly and you can really see it all play out in those couple of pages of transcripts. What do you think would have happened if they had Twitter and Instagram way back when in 63? Would everything be totally different, like at Zapruder? <laughs> yeah, I love that. Well, I guess I guess the key would be that we wouldn't just have this Zapruder film to look at. We'd have tons more angles. and uh, But then, you know, you sort of get into that territory of how directly you're experiencing something impactful like that. Like, you probably know Nardwar the difference between people watching at a at a show or are they just watching through their camera at, you know, this live music. And I wonder if people would regret sort of just filming this event and not actually participating in such a, you know, more direct way. In your documentary, Lee Harvey Oswald, 48 Hours to Live, how many characters are there? There's so many characters, isn't there, involved in a JFK assassination? How many characters total? Definitely. Uh, I don't know an exact number, but I think it's about eight main characters that we have because primarily our film is about the interrogation. And so you're really looking at Captain Fritz, who um, spearheaded the investigation, certainly Oswald, certainly his family, like his wife Marina and his mother Marguerite. And um, the other people that were involved, you know, Ruth Payne, as I mentioned before, of course, Ruby. And the other folks that come in and out of the film would be you know, the detectives and um, Ruby's dog, Sheba. And it really plays into those 48 hours. So you'll have to see how that works. Now, who did you say did the interrogation? I thought the interrogation wasn't recorded. Are all the notes public domain now? Yeah, they are. Those were um, done um, very much by the FBI agent uh, Hostie, who appears in the film as well. He's another main character. So uh, let me... Here's the sound of Scott Googling up some information here. We're speaking here live to Scott on the occasion of JFK's death day. And Scott helped put together Lee Harvey Oswald, 48 Hours to Live, a documentary on the History Channel. That's right. I just wanted to be sure I had it right that James P. Hostie is our man that I was looking for, who was an FBI agent who was um, very close related to the investigation. Well, the interrogation right there from uh, the 22nd through the 24th. And a lot of the notes were taken then, but you're exactly right. There was an audio available. 
So what did you do to make the film happen, to make it accurate? How did you know what to say? Uh, that's more in Gillen's territory, sorry. Steve Gillen's territory. How about Ozzy's children? Did you try contacting them at all? Did they come up? No, they didn't come up either. But um, I have I have Nardwar two interesting tidbits for you I think you might dig. Um, the first is, Nardwar, do you know about uh, Nick Beef? No. Nick Beef, I think you'd get a kick out of. And um, that's about the gravesite next to Oswald's. You'll have to check it out in Shannon Hill, uh, Shannon Rose Hill Memorial. Um, there's a gravesite next to Oswald's that almost feels, you know, disrespectfully close. How, how on earth could this person be so close to Oswald's? And, um, it's always been a mystery who this person was. I think that the most popular idea was that someone named Nick Beef, who was a stand-up comedian in the 80s, decided he was going to uh, get that plot next to him so he could be famous and you could always find him after he died. But uh, just this year, actually, it came more out into the public as to who Nick Beef was. And uh, do you want to check that out, Nardwar, or should I talk about it a no, little? No, please, go ahead. Well, it's just, it's really funny. Um, it turns out that Nick Beef is actually a fellow named Patrick Abedin, I think it's pronounced. And um, he actually was, um, he was there visiting in Dallas. And the assassination was always just something that he really took close to heart and um, was really impressed with his experience being able to run into President Kennedy and uh, Jack Kennedy as they landed at um, Dallas-Fort Worth. And so because he was just so struck by this, when he learned that Oswald's grave was for sale, he decided to, you know, nab it up so that way he could always have himself tied to that piece of history and that moment in his life. How do you spell beef? B-E-E-F, just like it would sound. B-E-E-F. And Scott, writer, actually assembler. You're assembler or director. What's your official title for Lee Harvey Oswald, 48 Hours to Live? What's your official title on this? I like assembler. I guess it falls into the associate producer. And you're saying a lot of it centers around the interrogation of Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, wasn't the Dallas Police Department incompetent? You said they were pretty good, but some other people said that they were incompetent in a way that they interrogated him. I don't think they were incompetent at all. I think that that probably comes from that very bizarre um, kind of iconic, iconic image of the rifle being shuffled along the hugely crowded hallways of reporters. The interrogation itself was not at all, you know, a blunder. That um, that Chief Fritz was an incredibly well-respected um, interrogator. He worked on some pretty popular cases, including the Bonnie and Clyde case, interestingly. And uh, he really had a way of putting Oswald at ease and sort of tapping into his mind. And um, what we were talking about earlier about saying Oswald versus his first name, Lee, I noticed that uh, Chief Fritz was always able to say Lee, which seemed different than everybody else. Who else was present at the interrogation beside Chief Fritz? Was there anybody else? And there was no recordings, as I mentioned. There was no recordings. It was just notes like Chief Fritz was taking notes. And have you seen those notes? 
Uh, I haven't seen the notes because I didn't do that aspect for the film. Um, he did not take notes because he wanted just a direct eye to eye conversation to put that, uh, you know, to put that other person at ease. The notes came primarily from the other people coming in and out that were related to um, maybe witnesses or somebody came in um, named Harry Holmes, I believe his name was, and he was with the um, the post office because there was, of course, the strangeness where a lot of mail came to A. Heidel, who was uh, an alias of Oswald's. When he was arrested, he had two IDs on him. He had the Lee Harvey Oswald ID and also that A.J. Heidel. Did he ever explain that? Um, interestingly, his comment was, I don't explain it. You know, I have nothing to say about it. That was what was really interesting about the interrogation is he was just so calm and he had an answer for everything. How about Lee Harvey Oswald's cellmate? Uh, I don't know about his cellmate. Um, what do you know? Because actually I know that Oswald only stayed in his cell alone. Do you know something differently? Apparently, there was another guy that was in the cell or right beside him at the Dallas Police Department at the same time. It's been mentioned, and there's some news items on him and stuff like that. I was just curious if you knew about that. I think that's untrue, actually. I know that there was a police officer that would be outside of the uh, jail cell all times, but that's untrue. There was a... um there was a set of three jail cells that were the maximum security, and he sat right there in the middle of the three. Did you hear about Lee Harvey Oswald's girlfriend that's been touring the United States of America, Judith Very Baker? No, I don't. I'm sorry, Nardwar. There also was an Oswald getaway plan, apparently. Did you hear anything about that? Like, after Oswald shoots the president, he runs to the theater, but some people have thought, hmm, that's where he's meeting David Ferry to fly him out of there. Right, right. Yeah, we touched on that in the film, and I think that's where a lot of people will be pleased on. Uh, You know, people have a lot of different opinions, and because our focus is those 48 hours, there is that room for, you know, what if. But the getaway plan, I think, seems pretty clear that he wanted to make his way to, uh, I think it would be Mexico City and to the Soviet embassy because he wanted to try to prove, you know, after leaving Russia that, hey, he's really with their cause and really wanted to be part of, uh, you know, Cuba's cause because you probably remember Nardwar, he was a um, member of that um, Fair Play for Cuba committee. So I think he was the was, only member of it or there were two people that were a member of it. Yeah, I think he was the only member in Dallas. You're right. Do you worry um, that you might be sucked into, a, you know, disinformation? Like, that you're a puppet of disinformation at all, Scott? Like, you know, when you're doing this documentary saying, you know, only one shooter, member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, are you worried you're getting sucked in and, you know, a, a disinformation? Have any, like, assassination researchers tried to, you know, blackball you, you know, for trying to say it's the lone gunman? I'm not worried in the slightest because of the evidence out there and also because of the focus of our film. Personally, I get a kick out of thinking about more of the what ifs and the larger picture beyond those 48 hours. And I told you about that interesting bit of the roster I found on the uh, Leslie Oswald. But I mean, all signs point to Oswald as far as I'm concerned. How about music in Oswald? Do you know what type of music Lee Harvey Oswald liked? Because apparently he bought tickets for Dick Clark's Caravan of Stars at the Top 10 Record Store. 
Yeah, I remember chatting about that a little with you. No, unfortunately, I don't know about his music tastes. I know that he met uh, Marina in Russia at a dance, but I don't know enough about that. Can you tell us about um, the uh, the records that we were chatting about that were recorded at the Carousel Club? Do you know anything about that? No, I don't. I just heard something that Jello Biafra had a record that was recorded at the Carousel Club. And actually, Norton Records from New York has put out this compilation. And I think I sent you that little link there, like yeah. songs from the Grassy Knoll. And they go all into that and they go into all the different connections. How in the top 10 record store where Lee Harvey Oswald bought tickets for Dick Clark's Caravan of Stars, it was going to be happening. Of course, the show got canceled. Tippett also made his last phone call ever at the top 10 record store. So Norton Records has this entire thing completely documented. I don't know much about it, but I thought it was quite interesting. Yeah, that that is something I get a kick out of. I feel like it's a lot of uh, reaching to try to prove your point. But, you know, I still am open and have fun with the other ideas. It's just sort of not our angle and not what I want to commit my heart to, you know. How about Jack Ruby? What did you learn about Jack Ruby from putting together Lee Harvey Oswald, 48 Hours to Live? Well, I think Jack Ruby is proof that a lot of this was just good luck, you know? Um, it was it was a lot of people that fell into the right place at the right time for this to have happened. And Ruby was just someone who always needed to be at the center of everything. And he had that... Uh, that kind of personality as the club owner. And there's a lot of stuff, like I said, it's just somehow this all worked out. The timing couldn't have worked out, you know, more perfectly in this strange way where Ruby was really disturbed by all of the news. And you could see some photos of him actually finding his way through the Dallas police department. He was at that famous press conference where you can see Oswald speak, um, unaware he was actually charged of shooting the president and um so with ruby you know the day of the assassination he was just sitting at home in his underwear like i said watching tv watching things unfold and he had gone well past the time at home where um how did you know he was in his underwear uh i think that came out in the in his interrogation that's a good point though was there a lot of unflattering stuff in the interrogation stuff when you went through it? Like, somebody was in his underwear. Did you find out a lot of, like, off-the-cuff stuff? Like you were saying, Lee Harvey Oswald talking about the curtain rod that he was bringing. Maybe you could tell people about the curtain rod and the sandwich. Yeah, that was um, some of the dark humor I kind of found in this story. There are a few strange tidbits that, um, you know, Oswald's wit and being able to answer questions really quickly. He His reason for carrying this long package to work was not that he carried a rifle, but in fact that he was just carrying curtain rods he had. And someone said, well, that's sure a big bag for curtain rods you have. I thought you were just bringing your lunch, you know? And he's like, well, you can never find the right size bag for your sandwich, you know? And um, let's see. I guess, yeah, there you go. Oh, I think I also told you, Nardwar, that another kind of strange bit of dark humor came from um, how Lady Bird Johnson said, I guess, trying to console Jackie that the saddest thing of all this, you know, is that it happened in her dear state of Texas. So I got a kick out of that, too. For the soundtrack. 
soundtrack of Lee Harvey Oswald, 48 Hours to Live, did you ask about maybe including the Misfits bullet or any punk rock tunes alluded to the Kennedy assassination or Ed <laughs> Kennedy's? I kind of mentioned to you that Jello maybe has that record from the Carousel Club or has heard about an actual recording Carousel Club. Again, Norton Records would know about this more. And I think Jack Rupi was a record producer too, but was there any punk music included in the soundtrack at all? No, that was definitely something I would have liked to have learned more about, but not really fitting in our, our bill for the History Channel. How about other stuff relating to the JFK assassination? For instance, after JFK was assassinated, he was brought to the hospital and then, you know, shipped back to Washington, D.C. Did you hear any rumors that were out there about JFK's neck wound being abused by Secret Service agents in a naughty way? Wow, no, I I haven't heard about that. Like, the Secret Service agents use their private parts to abuse JFK's neck wound in Air Force One. Is that perhaps one of the more out-there things you've heard about the JFK assassination? What are the more out-there things you've heard? Uh, I don't know too much about that, but I, you know, I think the the theories range from all kinds of things where even... Uh, Jackie shot, you know, her husband. And I, I need to know more about what you're talking about, though. There's also the driver killing Kennedy and in JFK's bodyguard accidentally killing Kennedy. Right, right, right. Well, I think that just goes back to the focus of our film where all of the ballistics heads right back into the rifle from the sixth floor window and that rifle being tied back to Oswald. So you pretty much believe it's case closed. Well, yeah, that's what we're going after. And people should get off the grassy knoll and start stop hypothesizing about things. Yeah, like if it's case closed, why did you guys put together Lee Harvey Oswald, 48 Hours to Live, if it's case closed? Well, I think because you have to appreciate that for the 50th anniversary. I think there's still plenty to remind people of and also to, I don't want to say you know, squelch people's imagination and, you know, desire to learn more about their government and their history. I think that is perfectly important. But I I also think it's important to ground yourself into what happened there. So people tonight should tune into Lee Harvey Oswald, 48 Hours to Live on the History Channel. And then speaking here to Scott, who helped put together the assembler of Lee Harvey Oswald, 48 Hours to Live. And Scott, aside from John F. Kennedy, you love punk rock, and you brought to my attention a couple tunes, and I want to end with those tunes. What can you tell the people about Rot Iron Smile from Victoria, B.C., Canada? I don't know too much about Rod Iron Smile other than they totally hit a right chord for me. It was just one of those things I found where their their music seemed so different from other stuff I was listening to. I liked their uh, kind of all-over-the-place sound. It was one of those things where they have a song called 21 and Counting. I happened to be 21 at the time when I was listening to them and really dug it. And it's incredible how Rod Iron Smile from Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, now has a connection to the Kennedy assassination. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to hear it. Thanks to you. <laughs> what else do you want to add to the people out there at all, Scott? No, I just appreciate your time, Nardwar, and I hope that we can stay in touch. If you have more uh, music suggestions along that line of Rod Iron Smile, and thanks a lot for getting in touch. Well, thanks so much, Scott. 
keep on rocking in the free world and doot doot a loot do. Doot do. You're still listening to the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. You just heard right there from Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, Rot Iron Smile with 21 and counting. And before that, an interview with Scott from the documentary Lee Harvey Oswald, The Last 48 Hours, which is actually airing tonight on the History Channel at 10 p.m. Pacific, and I think 10 p.m. Eastern as well. Coming up to end the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show, a bit more Oswaldian Kennedyan adventures on the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show. Going to play something called Conspiracy Rock. Thank you, Eric Drysdale from New York City for this. And then after that, Something also related to New York City, something on Norton Records from New York City. Homer Henderson's Lee Harvey Oswald was a friend of mine from Norton Records. Songs from the Grassy Knoll. And then Oswald self-portrait 
in red. Lee Harvey Oswald talking. Yes, this is recorded about a year before the assassination of John F. Kennedy. It's totally great quality, and it's really quite bizarre that there's such great documentation of Lee Harvey Oswald's voice pre-assassination. I guess he went to Europe. There's lots of documentation about this, but this is just absolutely amazing. This is actually a TV interview. So we're going to hear a little bit, as much as I can, I'm going to put in there of Oswald self-portrait in red. And keep in mind, this is recorded before the assassination of John F. Kennedy. But right now, here's Conspiracy Rock, and in Homer Henderson's Lee Harvey Oswald was a friend of mine. On the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio JFK 50 Special. Hmm. People that were there and all the things that are unfair and all the things that they won't share, you know they're wrong. Conspiracy's a special word, it's many things you never heard. I'd find it highly unlikely to believe the single gun theory. Oh, I took a plane to Dallas in 63. Gonna see a speech by John F. Kennedy. Motorcade came rolling by and bullets and gun smoke started to fly. I took a plane to Dallas in 63. Well, all the people that were there, like the mayor or Governor Connolly, and all the things that are unfair, a lack of secret service agents, and all the things that they won't share, incompatible autopsy reports, you know they're wrong. You know they're wrong, oh. They put a slug into the president's neck. his wrist remained embedded in his hips they put a slug into the president's neck well everything that we don't know how could oswald use two different guns and everything that they won't show like the whole of zapruder's film and everything that just won't flow the cia men on the grassy knoll you know they're wrong conspiracy's a special word it's many things you never heard i find it highly unlikely to believe the single gun theory a commission was appointed to look around and report to the people everything they found some depositions were destroyed a larger scandal to avoid a commission was appointed to look around for all the witnesses that died 13 of them before 66 and everything they try to hide an Oswald double in Mexico, and all the facts we are denied. Where did the magic bullet come from? You know it's wrong. Conspiracy's a special word, it's many things you never heard. I find it highly unlikely to believe the single gun theory. Darn, that's the end. I was born in Dallas in 1952. The Harvey Moon. 
say he shot the president I don't think he did And Lee Harvey was a friend of mine He used to take me fishing all the time He used to throw the ball to me When I was just a kid They say he shot the president I don't think he did I seen that picture of him With pamphlets and a gun The shadows are pointing every which way But there's only just one sun Someone faked that photo And snuck away and hid They say he shot next voice you hear is that of the accused assassin of President John F. Kennedy, 24-year-old Lee Harvey Oswald. Yes, I am a Marxist. These words are typical of the dramatic debate which follows. Now to introduce the uncut, unedited transcription is the Honorable Hale Boggs, congressman from New Orleans, House Majority Whip, and a close legislative associate of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Congressman Boggs. You are about to hear an historic recording. This recording was made in New Orleans last year. It is far more significant today in the light of subsequent events. It is to the credit of the private citizens of New Orleans that it was they who first recognized the bizarre and incredible activities of Lee Harvey Oswald and brought him and his activities to the attention of the public. Credit is due to radio station WDSU and to newsman Bill Slatter, who moderated this program so lately. To Latin American Affairs reporter Bill Stuckey, who sought out Oswald and arranged the interview. And to Cuban refugee leader Carlos Bringuer, 
who refuted his blatant pro-Castro propaganda. And last, but certainly not least, to Ed Butler, Executive Vice President of INCA, the Information Council of the Americas, who developed much new material on Oswald's movements and activities, not only in New Orleans, but elsewhere. Let me say a word about the purposes of INCA, the organization which Mr. Butler directs. I have taken a very personal interest in INCA, as I said, a private organization which originated in my own congressional district. On September 17, 1962, I said to my colleagues in Congress that INCA is actively engaged in the defeat of the communist movement through its Truth Tapes program, a program which provides scores of refugees from communist tyranny the opportunity and the forum to relate their experiences on tape recordings for broadcast by radio stations throughout the Americas. In this worthy counterattack, Mr. Butler has been joined by many highly respected private citizens led by Dr. Alton Oxner, President of the Information Council of the Americas and an internationally famous surgeon from New Orleans. I conclude my remarks with the statement that such a program as INCAS is a solid, forceful way to counteract red propaganda, infiltration, and subversion. Now, the full, unedited transcription of the panel discussion which took place on the evening of August 21st, 1963, in the city of New Orleans. WDSU Radio presents Conversation Carte Blanche, next on Cavalcade. It's time now for Conversation Carte Blanche. Here is Bill Slatter. Good evening. For the next few minutes, Bill Stuckey and I, Bill, whose uh, program you probably heard on Saturday night, uh, Latin Listening Post, Bill and I are going to be talking with three gentlemen, uh, uh, the subject mainly revolving around Cuba. Our guests tonight are Lee Harvey Oswald, who is secretary of the New Orleans chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. It's a New York headquartered organization which is generally recognized as the principal voice of the Castro government in this country. Uh, our second guest is Ed Butler, who is executive director of the Information Council of the Americas, which is headquartered in New Orleans and specializes in distributing anti-communist educational materials throughout Latin America. And our third guest is Carlos Bringier, a Cuban refugee and New Orleans delegate of the Revolutionary Student Directorate. It's one of the more active of the anti-Castro refugee organizations. Uh, Bill, at this, at this time, if you'll uh, briefly background the situation as you know it. Thank you, Bill. Uh, first, for those who don't know uh, too much about the background of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, this is an organization that uh, specializes primarily in distributing literature and is based in New York. For the several years in which it's been in existence, um, it has uh, operated principally out of the East and uh, out of the West Coast and a few college campuses. Recently, however, um, attempts have been made to organize a chapter here in New Orleans. Uh, the only member of the group to have revealed himself publicly so far is 23-year-old Lee Harvey Oswald, who is the secretary of the local chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. He first came to public notice several days ago when he was arrested and convicted for disturbing the peace. The ruckus, the ruckus in which he was involved started when several local Cuban refugees, including Carlos Bringier, who is with us tonight, 
discovered him uh, distributing pro-Castro literature on a downtown street. Now, Mr. Oswell and Breen are here with us tonight to give us opposing views on the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and its objectives. Now, uh, I believe that I was probably the first New, uh, New Orleans reporter to interview Mr. Oswell on his activities here uh, since he first uh, came into public view. Last Saturday, uh, in addition to having him on my show, uh, we had a very long and rambling uh, question and answer session over various uh, points of dogma and uh, line of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. And uh, now I'll give you a, a very brief digest of some of the principal uh, propaganda lines. I use the word propaganda is uh, rather, I should say, informational lines uh, of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. <coughs> Number one, the principal thing that uh, they insist is that Castro's government today is completely free and independent and is in no way controlled by the Soviet Union. Another cardinal point of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee's propaganda is that uh, uh, Premier Castro was forced to seek aid from the Russians only because the United States government refused to offer him financial aid. In following another line, I asked Mr. Oswell if he had ever or was a member of the American Communist Party, and he said that the only organization to which he belonged was the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Mr. Oswell also gave me this uh, rundown on his personal background. He said that he was a native of New Orleans, had attended Beauregard Junior High School and Warren Eastern High School, had uh, entered the U.S. Marine Corps in 1956 and was honorably discharged in 1959. He said uh, during our previous interview that he had lived in Fort Worth, Texas before coming here to establish a Fair Play for Cuba chapter several weeks ago. However, there, was, uh, there were a few items apparently that uh, I suspect that Mr. Oswell left out of this original interview, which was uh, principally uh, where he lived after between 1959 and 1962. Um, we, uh, Mr. Butler, brought uh, some newspaper clippings to my attention, and I also found some through an independent uh, investigation, uh, Washington newspaper clippings, to the effect that Mr. Oswell had attempted to renounce his American citizenship in 1959 and become a Soviet citizen. Uh, there was another clipping dated 1952 saying that uh, uh, Mr. Oswell had returned from the Soviet Union with his wife and child after having lived there for three years. Mr. Oswell, are these correct? That is uh, correct, yes. You did live in Russia for three years? That is correct, and I think those, uh, the fact that I did uh, live for a time in the Soviet Union gives me excellent qualifications to uh, repudiate charges that Cuba and the Fair Play for Cuba Committee is communist controlled. Mr. Uh, Bringier, perhaps you would like to dispute that point. Well, I want to know exactly the name of the organization that you represent here in the city, because I have some confusion. Is Fair Play for Cuba Committee or Fair Play for Russia Committee? Well, that is, of course, a very provocative and uh, uh, question. I don't think it, it requires an answer. Well, I will tell you why. Because before the communists take over Cuba, Cuba was at the head of the Latin American countries and I can show you that in Cuba, in 1958, every 37 pe persons has an automobile, and in Russia, was 200 persons for one automobile. In Cuba, was six persons for one radio, and in Russia, was 20 persons for one radio. In Cuba, was one television set for 18 persons, and in Russia, was 85 persons for one television set, and in Cuba, was one telephone for every 38 persons, and in Russia was one telephone for every 580 persons. Cuba 
was selling the sugar, the sugar in the American market and was receiving from the United States more than $100 million a year over the price of the world market. And the United States was paying to Cuba that price in dollars. Right now, Cuba is selling the sugar to Russia. Russia is paying to Cuba 80% in junks, in machinery from Russia, and 20% in dollar. I think that Cuba right now is a colony of Russia, and the people of Cuba, who is living Cuba every day, who is escaping from Cuba every day, they disagree with you that you are representing the people of Cuba. Maybe you will represent the, uh, the colony of Russia here in this moment, but not the people of Cuba. You cannot take that uh, responsibility. Well, in order to give a clear and concise and short answer to each of those, uh, uh, well, let's say questions, I would say that the facts and figures from our country like Pakistan or Burma would even uh, reflect more uh, uh, light upon Cuba in relation to how many, uh, how many television sets and how many radios and all that. Uh, this, I do not think, is a, uh, a subject to be discussed tonight. Uh, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, as the name implies, is uh, concerned primarily with Cuban-American relations. How many uh, people do you have on your committee here in New Orleans? Uh, I cannot reveal that. A secretary of the uh, Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Is it a secret society? Uh, no, Mr. Butler, it is not. However, it is a, a standard operating procedure uh, for a political organization consisting of a uh, political minority uh, to safeguard the names and the number of its members. Well, the Republicans are in the minority. I don't see them hiding their membership. The Republicans are not a, uh, well, <laughs> the Republicans uh, are a established political party representing a great many people. They represent no radical point of view. They do not have a very violent and sometimes emotional opposition as we do. Oh, I see. Well, would you say then that uh, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee is not a communist front organization? Uh, the Senate subcommittees who have occupied themselves with uh, uh, investigating the Fair Play for Cuba Committee uh, have found that there is nothing to connect the two committees. We have been investigated from uh, several points of view, that is, points of view of uh, taxes, allegiance, aversion, and so forth. The findings uh, have been, as I say, absolutely zero. Well, I have a, the Senate hearings before me, and I think what I have in front of me refutes precisely every statement that you just made. For instance, who is the honorary chairman of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee? Uh, the honorary chairman of this committee, uh, the name of that person, uh, I certainly don't know. Well, let me tell you, in case you don't know about your own organization. Uh, no, I know about it. His name is Waldo Frank, and I'm quoting from the New Masses of September 1932. The title of his article is How I Came to Communism, a Symposium, by Waldo Frank, Where I Stand and How I Got There. Uh, now, let me ask you a second question. Who is the secretary of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, the national secretary? Well, we have a national director who is Mr. V.T. Lee, who has recently uh, returned from Cuba. And because of the uh, fact that the United States government has imposed restrictions on travel to Cuba, he is now under indictment for his traveling to Cuba. Uh, this, however, it's very convenient for uh, rightist organizations to uh, drag out this or that literature purporting to show a fact which has not been established in law 
I have said that uh, the Fair Play com uh, for Cuba Committee has definitely been investigated. That is very true. Mm -hmm. uh, I have also said that the total result of that uh, uh, investigation was zero. That is, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee is not now on the Attorney General's subversive list. Any other uh, material you may have is uh, superfluous. Uh, Mr. Mr. Oswald, if I may break in a sure. moment. Uh, uh, I believe it was mentioned that you at one time asked to renounce your American citizenship and become a, a citizen of the Soviet Union. Is that correct? Well, I don't think that has a particular uh, uh, import to this discussion. We are discussing uh, Cuban-American relations. Well, no, it, I think it has a bearing to this uh, extent, Mr. Oswald. You say, apparently, that Cuba is not dominated by Russia. And yet, uh, you apparently, by your own past actions, have shown that you have an affinity for Russia and perhaps communism, although I don't know that you admit that you either are a communist or have been. Uh, could you straighten out that point? Are you or have you been a communist? Well, I had answered that uh, uh, prior to this program on another radio program. Are you a Marxist? Uh, yes, I am a Marxist. What's the difference? Well, the difference is uh, primarily the difference between a country like Ghana, Guyana, Yugoslavia, uh, China, or Russia, uh, very, very great differences. Differences which we uh, appreciate by giving aid, let's say, to uh, Yugoslavia in the sum of uh, 100 million or so dollars That's per extraneous. year. That's extraneous. What's the difference? The difference is, uh, is as I said, a very great difference. Uh, many parties, many uh, countries are based on Marxism. Uh, many countries, such as Great Britain, display very socialistic uh, aspects and characteristics. I might point to the socialized medicine of Britain. Most people Gentlemen, I'll have to interrupt. Uh, we'll be back in a moment to continue this rather lively discussion after this message. During the next two minutes, the public heard a commercial message and the panelists saying little shuffled their papers preparing for the final round of the debate. The only man in the listening audience who knew the full story of Oswald's defection beforehand was Dr. Alton Ochsner, the world-famous New Orleans surgeon who is president of Inca. Dr. Ochsner, on a world tour as expert consultant to the Surgeon General of the Air Force, has himself confronted delegates from Communist China. He has also seen and heard red agitators and propagandists at work in Latin America. Here are his first-hand impressions of Lee Harvey Oswald. Dr. Ochsner. Thank you. Since I was familiar with Oswald's background, when I heard him smoothly admit his three-year defection to Russia, I was not overly surprised. But when he tried to use his admission as a proof that the fair play for Cuba committee was not communist controlled, I knew that Ed Butler was facing the same kind of propaganda doublethink that I'd heard so many communists and their sympathizers use in my travels all over the world. However, as the interview went on and the hard-hitting questions and factual evidence piled up, I relaxed. Oswald had obviously met his match. It is important to remember that at that time, Oswald had technically committed no crime. Therefore, no official could prevent him from spreading poison on the airwaves. Nor would any of us who believe in the freedom of speech want a thought control agency to assume such powers. Private citizens must meet the distortion with truth. On the other hand, a professional approach with indisputable facts and a planned strategy is needed if private citizens are to provide the antidote for propaganda poison. Because the full facilities of Inca were available, for a change, the propaganda battle was fought evenly. The results speak for themselves. Oswell dropped out of sight immediately after the debate and left New Orleans shortly thereafter. According to published reports, he went to Mexico, where he visited the communist embassies of Russia and Cuba. 
Then he took up residence in an apartment in a Dallas suburb under the alias of O.H. Lee, where several letters from the same man written on the stationery of both the Communist Party USA and the Fair Play for Cuba Committee were reportedly found. Many who have heard this record have expressed the belief that if an Inca branch office had existed in Dallas, Oswald will again have been exposed and the president might be alive today. No one can say for certain. But as you listen to the second part of this record, think about it and decide for yourself. It's a classic already. <laughs> and it hasn't even come out yet. Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. One unforgettable night. June 30th at the Orpheum Theater. Tickets on sale now at all Ticketmaster locations and Ticketmaster.ca. New albums live from KCRW and Push the Skyway available now. On Jubilee Street, there was a girl named. For more info, visit nickcave.com. She had a history. How you feel? Ah! Feel alright? CITR presents DJing 101.9. We offer people a way to learn about the fun of mixing, sharing music, and throwing events. Our workshops and studio access is free for students and members. No experience or turntables are necessary. Workshops from 4 to 8 p.m. are on Tuesdays in 212A in the Student Union Building at UBC. For more information, visit us at citr.ca or follow at CITRDJ on Twitter. Right here on News 101. What motivated you to become a candidate in the provincial election? The media portrayal of last week's protest that resulted in polarizing images of black-clad activists taking to the streets. 
he was just explaining to us the reason why they wanted to show this film on campus. The official stance is that we are for the Olympics. News 101 reporter Brad Pepping was there. By discriminating against homeless people in Vancouver, there's a disproportionate impact on Aboriginal people as well as people with disabilities. I was pretty outraged. I mean, it is outrageous. In-depth coverage from an alternative perspective. You're listening to News 101, Vancouver's only live, volunteer-produced, student and community newscast offering you local, national and international news from an alternative perspective. Today is Friday, the 22nd of November. I'm Morgan Yee. And I'm Alex Sarah Davis. And you're listening to News 101 on CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting to you live from the University of British Columbia, Columbia, to our UBC campus, to the residents of Vancouver, and to our listeners of our podcast and newscast on CITR.ca. Uh, in light of the recent typhoon in the Philippines, on today's show, we have a special panel discussion about relief aid and its implications. Uh, we're joined by, well, Jan Ludart is not here currently, uh, but we do have Eliza Detar and Francis Arevalo, Arevalo, as well as Emily McCants and Will Groot, um, who are all involved in the night with the Philippines. Later in the show, we will be joined by Nina and Josh, who will be presenting on a recent rally, as well as covering the March to Reclaim Consent, which is literally happening right now on the UBC campus. Uh, if you can run, <laughs> you, if you run, you can probably make it to the statue of the goddess of democracy out in the courtyard between the sub and Brock Hall. Uh, before we begin our first discussion, um, we'll just provide some background on what's going on in the Philippines. Uh, so on November 8th, two weeks ago today, Typhoon Haiyan hit the eastern seaboard of the Philippines, causing enormous destruction and loss of life. The storm had winds ranging from 235 kilometers an hour up to 275 kilometers an hour, with six meters storm surge. Um, although 800,000 people were evacuated prior to the storm hitting, many of the evacuation sites could not withstand the strength of the storm. And right now, the death toll is estimated to be sitting around 5,000 people, with 1,611 people still missing. Uh, and 4 million people are currently homeless. Although Canada has contributed more than $40 million in aid to the Philippines to date, aid has been slow reaching the hardest-hit areas due to damage to roads and other local infrastructure. Uh, Two Griffin helicopters were dispatched on Sunday to reach the region, and uh, this Monday Stephen Harper promised more funds to help with relief efforts, including water purification units. Canada's contribution to aid after the 2004 tsunami struck Asia was roughly $425 million, according to news coverage at the time, and Canada committed a total of $130 million in aid after a 2005 earthquake in Pakistan, according to a government estimate. Here in studio with me, as I've, as I've uh, previously mentioned, uh, we have Eliza and Francis. We have Dr. Will Groot, who is the director of Rose Charities. We have Emily, as well as Alex, Sarah Davis, and myself. Uh, everyone, welcome to the show. Um, just to open up the discussion, if everyone can go around, introduce themselves, and briefly explain their positions on or involvement with uh, the aid relief to the Philippines. Uh, we'll start with uh, Will. Hi there, yeah. Um, well, I am a director of 
of Rose Charities, which is a uh, homegrown BC organization. We've been in existence now around 12, um, well, 12, 13 years. And uh, we have a fair amount of experience with uh, international relief work. Um, we do steady-state projects. We, uh, our main aim is to help where we can. We don't have a huge team of emergency